Hello and welcome to the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. On this Bad Beats episode, we will explore the human side of real estate investing with a seasoned pro about to make the legendary worst deal of their life. A deal isn't just the investment, it is also the person. Stay with us and learn what it takes to be the best investor. Awesome. So we're at the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. This is our second episode. We got back Scott Sutherland. And instead of coming through and talking about the great investments that we made this episode, we're going to be breaking down all the dirty laundry, the dirtiest of the dirty laundry (laughs) is what I want to get to. I want to get to that stuff that you hide away that you're shameful of and what's happening here. And I just mean that tongue in cheek because we all know as investors is actually not everything is all, there's not all wins, right? And so what we really find is the deals that went wrong are the ones that are the biggest lessons that we actually needed to learn. And they're painful, painful lessons, no doubt, but they're hyper important for our future success if we look at them correctly, right? You brush a failure under the rug, you learn jack. If you really sit down and scrutinize what it is and what your thinking was at the time and the assumptions you were making and what was going on inside of your head, then that's something you can actually learn from. So Scott's going to actually do us a huge favor today by sharing some of that with us. And then we're going to try to get in to see where he went wrong and how we can see that in ourselves whenever we're going off track too. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, when you first suggested this, I was pretty reluctant. It seemed uh, quite counterintuitive. We do spend a lot of time talking about our wins and our victories, and some of the best lessons we learn are from the failures that we have. So yeah, I'm excited to talk about a specific deal. I'm fortunate that there's been a, I've had far more wins than losses, and and I don't think you'll find anybody who's really taken significant risks for any period of time that hasn't had a few losers. That The key is, as you mentioned, to you know, conduct a post-mortem after the fact, turn it into an educational experience, figure out what you did wrong, and try not to repeat those mistakes in the futures. And uh, this is great that hopefully some other people can learn those same lessons for less money. So Right, right. That's really <laughs> what it's about. We're so happy that you lost money so we don't <laughs> have right. to. It's fantastic. And, and just to kind of wrap up, because I don't know if everybody caught like, the last episode, is that lots of, Scott's a longtime real estate investor, um, one of the smartest guys that I know in real estate local here in Austin. And he's also been responsible for multi-million dollar funds, buying you know tens and scores of houses and flips all on time. Really, on every level of a game, when entrepreneurialism meets finding opportunity in real estate, Scott's one of the forefront guys that I know here locally that I know does a fantastic job with it. Unfortunately, what happens is something that we all can fall trap into, I think, which is when the more experience that we get, the more comfortable we get. And sometimes with that can come good things because we can know how to turn the crank and make money. And also there's some downsides to what can happen with that, which is what I think we're going to learn a little bit about today Yeah, and digging into that, right? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And I think as we start to scale up, we become, you know, we're very busy people and we were trying to perform, you know, juggle a lot of balls and sometimes maybe process through the analysis on uh, specific investment deals faster than we should. So the specific investment that we're talking about today was one that I was a, a passive investor in, uh, not one that I that operated in. That's the first thing we should touch on, which is because it's not your fault, right? <laughs> well, yeah, no, no, I, I was I was gonna gonna touch on the fact that you know there is an issue of control, and when you're the operator or the or the person running the show, there's a lot of things you can do to fix things when they go sideways. Passive investing is, is can be good or bad. I mean, everyone likes the idea of a 
investment that they don't have to be involved in, that it's, you know, mailbox money, that it just, you know, set it and forget it and let somebody else do all the heavy lifting. And it's great when it goes well. And there's a lot of great investments out there and a lot of great operators, you know, a number of the crowd, you know, there's real estate crowdfunding sites, there's uh, local sponsors in every market who are bringing deals forward that other people invest in. So those can be great. But at the same time, when those deals go sideways, you know, it's not like you can just, you know, you may not have the legal authority to, you know, take the reins and fix it. Yeah. So and I think that was something that I risk that I recognized in this particular investment from the get go. I knew that while I had the experience to operate it myself, that I was, you know, I was not unfortunately wouldn't be in a position to write the ship. And the reason that was is this particular investment was done through my self-directed IRA. And for those of you not familiar, and I won't get into all the, there's scores and scores of books regarding all the regulations uh, uh, relevant to self-directed IRA investing. But the short version is that when you are investing funds from your IRA, that you cannot be actively involved in the investment. So you are prohibited from being an active participant in that investment. So you do kind of tie your hands behind your back when you go down that path. Well, in a lot of ways too, though, if anybody's investing in passive deals, the operating agreements that they're going to have you sign in most cases are going to have your hands tied anyway, right? That's Yours true. are just ultra tied. But there's a piece to that I think that comes through as as how do you get involved in the investment to begin with, right? Right. If it's going to be passive, we always will do an analysis of What's my familiarity with the asset? Mm -hmm. And then if I feel comfortable enough with the asset, then I'm checking out the operator to say, is this somebody that I think can execute the vision of it? It's super rare that anybody says, I'm just going to throw money at an operator, even though I don't understand the asset. Almost everybody says, I understand the asset first. And then if I think the underlying asset is going to perform well based upon what I know about that type of investment, I'm going to then say, do I think this guy can execute, right? Right. So- can you walk us through in the very beginning pieces of it of what had you bold on that asset being a good asset and a good deal for you and your experience that led you sure. up to be- that belief? Sure. Yeah, I had a very high level of comfort with the cost of acquisition of duplexes in and around the Austin metro and also the rental rates and the ratios and the corresponding returns. I can I've dealt with hundreds of them, so I, I felt like I was very had, had a really good feel for knew what the a, data, knew all the data. data. I felt like yeah. I knew what a good deal looked like. Okay. So when this particular investment came up, and it was a group of duplexes, four duplexes, eight units total, I knew what the acquisition price was. I knew what current rents were. The sponsor put together a pro forma showing future financials and had an estimate of future rental rates after renovation. And I felt like those were, they seemed conservative based upon my experience. So I believed them without maybe as much analysis as I should have put in. Well, you can't know that ahead of time, right? Because you're saying this is an asset class I'm familiar with, right? All the numbers are in line with my historical understanding of what this should be, right? So that gives me two reasons, really good reasons to say that makes me think that this is a good play. Right. Right. Why would this go wrong? Right. Sure. So boom. So yeah, those two things are in line and then good. Asset looks good. Right. Why would you question it? Sure. It seemed like lots of exit opportunities seemed like an asset that would be readily resellable. And so I felt good about the asset itself. And before we move into the operator, I'd also like to point out that there's actually a third component that's pretty critical when evaluating, which is the structure of the deal. And the structure is the uh, the agreement, it's the financing, it's the nuts and bolts of who gets what when, who has control, 
you know, how are profits split in good times and bad times. And those are pretty important pieces as well. So that sounds like something we should dive more into during a webinar or something. Yeah. For sure. It's actually can. looking through that agreement to say where would we have done this differently. Absolutely. Would have yeah, and, I, and I can touch on, on the ones that are relevant to this particular conversation, yeah. but you're right. There's a lot of I know those agreements are snoozers, but they're important. Total snoozers, but like it's also the ways that this is what people will pay our law firm the Royal Legal Law Firm, a lot of money to have a look at is what are those agreements and and exactly this question of like, what's going to happen if things go wrong and where's your expertise in how these types of deals go wrong? Because as any like legal professional, the reason that you hire legal professionals and a lot of these things in CPAs to look at these kinds of deals is not because they happen to know the actual asset. They're not driving out there to go check it out, right? right. But they're like, on paper, this is how people get screwed, right? Right. So in your piece of it, was there pieces in there that you assumed as part of those agreements or part of the process when evaluating the asset that should have been fine because they were in line with you know what your experience was, but actually turned out to be the opposite of fine? Yeah, so back to the asset piece of it, the misses, which, you know, in and of itself weren't catastrophic, but this was kind of a submarket to Austin. It was a little bit outside the metro, had a little bit, the ratios, valuation ratios were slightly more modest. So I would just say that the projected value of the asset relative to the rental rates was slightly overestimated. You know, and everyone's optimistic. Sponsors tend to be a little bit optimistic on the projections in order to try and pull capital in. But in this case, the asset did not end up being worth as much when it was completed as we'd hoped, which, you know, if that had been the only issue, then we probably all still would have been fine. But this is, you know, when these deals go horribly wrong, it's 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 usually never a single thing that goes wrong. It's kind of a multiplication of multiple issues. So that was one. The other one, which may or may not have been an issue, a question that I had not even considered asking, was this particular asset actually was not for duplexes, as I had assumed and, and had been alluded to in the prospectus. It actually was a single asset, which... Under the legal description, it was just a single piece of property with, with four structures on it. Not, not an illegal structure by any means. It was, you know, conforming, but it's, that was just an, it limits your exit options when you have to sell all eight units together versus having, you know, separate pieces. And it changes, and it also yeah. changes the financing of, of the asset, both yeah. in a refinance and in a sales situation. Because now your exit risk actually was a lot higher than you than we anticipated. anticipated. Yeah. Right. So you were taking on additional risks that you didn't know about on the front end, right? That's correct. So those are the two things on the asset that were missed. And like I said, in and of themselves, neither one of those was a, a major issue. Had there not been operational you know, problems and we'd gotten to the end of the day, we all still would have made money even with those asset issues. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the piece of this though is about what is it that in the way that we're approaching the deal, right? Because right. there's always could have been like, uh, well, if this would have been wrong, this would have been wrong, right? But the learning opportunity when I'm looking at postmortem for deals that I've done that have gone wrong, I'm looking at like, yeah, that's also true. But mm-hmm. if I would have been checking this stuff, I might have included and say, this is too many red flags. And I'm not going to do that deal at all. That's right. That's right. Point. So it's, it's a false thing. I think it's a false analysis to say like, Oh, if it would only been for that one thing, it's everything would have been okay. fine. But right. well, really, if I would have been doing all these other things, these things, right. And I'm not trying to come down hard on you that like you should have done it all. Right. It's just that 
the point, the, the points are, yeah. The, the point is, I think, I think that's really important. And these is, am I consistent in the same processes that led me to be successful in the other deals versus this deal? Because you can't really control what happens with an investment. It's an illusion. The only thing that we can really control is the process that led us to a conclusion around what decisions we're making. And sometimes it's going to work out and sometimes the market's going to unexpectedly crash like it does in 2008 or something like that. Right. Right. And you can't control that. Right. So but the only thing we could say is, you know, where did you have a really good process that we covered in the last episode of how do you make killer deals Mm -hmm. on stop? Right. So how does somebody that's going from saying, yeah, there's deals that I can tell you exactly where you're. I'm getting 30% returns on some stuff where other people are too afraid to even enter the market Right. to saying, wow, how did you end up taking a bath? Like, where did the process right. break down? Right. And, you know, I think a lot of it is that, as we discussed, the hardest time to invest is when things are great. And that's when the market's hot, when confidence is the highest, you know, confidence peaks the day before the crash. So that's when things get tricky and we start to kind of let our guards down and maybe, you know, move on things that we shouldn't because there's this opportunity cost that comes from having capital sidelined. And in a market where there's too much capital chasing too few deals, the threshold for kind of sponsor performance, the bar gets lower. Super low, right? Get, People even stop low. asking questions. People do because yeah. they just think, well, that guy's doing it. He's done well, so I'll do it. Yeah, my friend Joe at the meetup did one other deal. Sure. Him, and he, he didn't seemed lose good. anything, yeah. so I guess I'll just go right. ahead. And, you know, I've prior to this, when I look at, at my – and I'll bet I evaluated, you know, turned down 10 other deals prior to this one um, – or or was turned down or missed a window of opportunity because I was too diligent in the eyes of the sponsor. Because you know, sponsors have got their goal is to fill up to get the capital that they need to do the project and, and move down the road. And they're gonna put together a a term sheet that raises the required capital while also making a great deal for them as well. So they're gonna give as much as they need to give to the investors so that they'll invest they can acquire the asset and hopefully they'll, you know, be satisfied and, and do more deals with them. So as more and more capital floods into the market, the bar for performance tends to continue to drop. So you can find yourself in a position where you're not investing in anything. So the question becomes, right. Do you compromise your evaluation yeah. criteria? And just take the best of what's out there, or do you, you know, potentially sit on the sideline for uh, until the next cycle or whenever that opportunity comes around? Yeah, sideline and cash, right? Yeah, there's a fear of loss, right? There is. It's like a FOMO almost in that. It is, and it's you know, it's it's an opportunity cost that's lost. I mean, if we're if you're trying to invest for the future and you have to keep your capital in play. None of us retires at, at, at 0% return. It's gotta be, you gotta be, you know, consistently exceeding, you know, inflation and, and then some. So how do we balance those two forces in a hot market? Well, it, it really begs a question, right? Of saying like in a hot market, where are you going to go to? I think what we typically would see is, um, right before stock market crashes, right? It's mm-hmm. this taxi driver that's telling you this is so great with Bitcoin right. now. Okay, my cousin who's 12 is telling me I need to invest in Bitcoin. <laughs> it's probably a good idea for me to short it. Right. If it's like everybody in the world is trying to tell me to go after it. Right. 
By the way, what makes this, what makes your story particularly tricky is that it's almost like in that scenario where we say, if I don't have this money motivated after the 10th deal, I'm exhausted from looking at deals. Right. And if I can just decide on a deal, then I can stop worrying about this as right. if it's like not motivated in capital is actually the pain point and motivating it anywhere gets rid of my pain. Right. So like, I'm wondering if that's like the point of like a question we should be asking ourselves as part of our process is like, where's my awareness at right now? Am I aware of actually thinking this is a good deal or am I really aware of the fact when I check in with myself about saying, am I really just doing this because damn it, I need to move this money and this is where it's at. Like, should do you think like we should be, like, is that part of what we should be doing as an investor when we're, you know, unsure or whether things aren't following our normal process? Like, how does that incorporate with, because there seems to be like there's this other component that has nothing to do with the actual investment. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's that desire, like the opposite of it. Well, you know, it's, it's like money burning a hole in your pocket. It's sitting there. It's not doing anything. And you think, well, I could rather than go out and, and have to earn money, I should have my money working for me. And right now it's 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 not doing the job. I think that part of the problem is that in unstable markets or soft markets, I think the returns tend to be elevated. As we discussed you know, 2010, 2011, there were shooting fish in a barrel. There were 30 percent returns levered just buying duplexes and houses in Austin and, and no one wanted them. And so. The returns just keep rising until someone finally says, throws their hand up and says, okay, I'll take a chance on that. You know, that's enough return that I'll take that risk. And now we've flipped to the other side, which is that the returns are getting compressed because of the amount of capital chasing. And, and perhaps the solution is to accept that rather than to chase higher returns, it's to try and determine what is the relationship between the risk and the return in this particular investment? And would you be better off taking an seven or an eight or a nine percent, you know, performa, you know, investor return with a, a known sponsor with, you know, no debt on the deal? In other words, a deal, I think one of the risks of this particular deal was that it had some ticking time bombs in the structure where if certain things didn't happen, we knew we'd painted ourselves into a corner. And so we had seller finance debt that had an expiration that was, you know, relatively near term. And so we knew that if we didn't get the projects done or couldn't refinance, that we could be in a tight spot. And since it was a, since it had debt on it, it was a higher risk levered investment versus some other deals you could have gone that we, that I could have looked at in that scenario that would have been maybe instead of shooting for 14 or 15%, could have taken a nice predictable nine on a debt side of things or on an unlevered equity investment where you thought, you know, the downside risk on this is much, much lower. If you lever something, if you borrow 80% of an investment, and it drops by 20%, you lose everything because you lost all your equity. You put 20% down, it dropped by 20%. You lost it all. The bank got their money back. But if you lose 20% on an unlevered investment, you lose 20%. And then you take your lumps, you sell, and off you go. So I think part of it, and I've made the same error in judgment when it comes to, I can think of houses that I haven't bought because of what I could have bought them for prior. And 
you tend to get this, you know, well, I was earning 15% last year. I'm not taking a nine. Or I bought a house in that neighborhood for a hundred grand last year. I'm not paying 120. So you tend to. Oh, a little entitled, huh? Yeah. I'm entitled to Absolutely. these kinds of returns Absolutely. and I will accept nothing less. That's right. Than it, and Absolutely. I'll just. Rather take on That's, something else. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I, I feel you though. I've done the same thing, right? I think we all have, right? It's, it's just part, of, I think it's ingrained in us. Right. So yeah. I think that you can almost throw out all your analysis because you attach yourself so heavily to that past information when it's largely irrelevant to the current, to the current analysis. Cause it's, it isn't with, you know, mm. without a time machine, it doesn't matter what you got yesterday. It's what are the options today and is it still a good deal and is it the best of what's out there? So yeah. I, I think that that's probably part of the, that was the part of the breakdown in judgment on the specific deal was I underestimated the risk because I was very focused on the return. I was very focused on what was going to happen when things went well and not on how quickly it could go, how quickly you could lose everything if it went poorly. Cool. I just want to recap this real quick, just to make sure that I'm on the same page. Uh-huh. So what we had is that there, the investor scenario is that it's a an investor that's experienced with a certain type of asset class, right. feels comfortable with it, has got accustomed to making particular types of returns based upon the historical type of investments that that is. Right. Right. We'll then say, well, this investment that I'm looking at right now is conforming with the historical projections. That we would have. So that makes me feel more secure. Right. And I've been looking at a ton of deals and none of these other deals look right. 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 So now I'm antsy to be able to put money into a deal. Or tired. Right. Or tired. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. right. Attach emotion in here that, you know, right. that makes me want to take action to just get this off my plate or whatever that's going to be. Right. Right. And so then the net effect of that is another thing I think you touched on, which was the exit strategies of these ticking time bombs, these red flags mm-hmm. that have coming up. Those pieces together uh, that we just mentioned before allowed you or set the stage really to gloss over other pieces. Right. That would have been red flags for you had it not necessarily been for all of these other kind of like pressures and, uh, like a cognitive priming in a way to say, this is good. This is good. This is right. good. Well, I'm going to ignore the fact that there's actually a blow up on the financing if this doesn't go through. Right. And maybe. In another scenario, you would have asked, I'm just assuming that were there pieces in there that you noticed ahead of time that you said, had the situation been different, I would have followed up on more details yeah. around XYZ? Yeah. So actually, there's there's two things that I actually did uh, broach with the operator prior to making an investment and, and I said, look, I'm not, I'm not comfortable with a couple of things. And the two things I brought up was, one, what happens if you can't get this thing refinanced? Convince me you can. And... I would say that I was allowed myself to be too easily convinced. There was a letter emailed from a lender of his saying he's good. I've checked his credit. He's pre-approved to refinance this thing. And, you know, not, not to fast forward to the end, but, uh, the, the, that may or may not have been true, but the, what ended up happening in this particular deal is the operator actually ended up going AWOL, just completely threw up his hands on this project and every other project he was on and, and basically disappeared yeah. due to just general kind of like, in my opinion, kind of an overall house of cards kind of collapse of some sort. But, you know, I don't know the details. I just know that 
But that's he, nothing you could have controlled, though. Right. Yeah, unless you're like a psychiatrist or like did a, sure. like a deep like in PI. But there's like the pieces that. Well, are I guess the, my point is yeah. that I may or may not have been. It sounds like I was I was uh, remiss in my evaluate or my due diligence in that regard because you know perhaps the next step would have been to call the lender and have more conversation with them or have him get pre-approved with my lender rather than trust somebody's piece of paper coming across the desk. So so the question I have is whether or not, you know, when do you say I've got enough information to be comfortable? You know, the second the second thing that I found in the agreement that I was uncomfortable with was that it was kind of an open-ended we had a one of the partners was also going to act as the contractor, but there was no provision for how much the contractor was going to make. So it was kind of a blank charge. Yeah, I was just kind of, this person's also going to rehab. No cost plus, whatever. No, so that's exactly what I said. I said, that's, I said, we all need to be arm in arm on this deal. We all need to only make money if the deal makes money. So there was an agreement to put a cost plus 10 provision into the agreement, which, you know, at the end of the day didn't. Can you explain what that is a little bit just in case people don't know? Sure. The idea is just that. The amount that the contractor can charge for the work performed is based upon the actual expenses that they, you know, the checks that they write to other contractors plus 10%, meaning that they can get kind of an, a 10% override. So if, if it costs them $5,000 to renovate a unit, then they can have $500 for themselves for kind of acting as GC and coordinating. Typical GC fees run closer to 20 to 30%. So it's kind of a token, you know, but it's what I always say is that when I look at a deal, I want to make sure that if the deal goes south, that the sponsors either don't make money or are very dissatisfied. You know, you want them arm in arm with you. You want them actually to worry more about the performance of the asset than you. So if you've got a deal structure where the sponsor makes money no matter what happens, I would say that's absolutely a non-starter. So you need to ask yourself, if this deal goes south, is it possible that, you know, do I have a sponsor? Have they put any money in personally? And is it a significant amount of money to them? You know, are they going to lose sleep over this deal if it goes south? And if you've got a deal where you think, man, this sponsor is going to really be hurt financially if this deal goes down, that's a good deal to look at because they're they're right there with you. Oh, yeah, they're working double as hard, right? Because right. they can't afford for it to go south, right? Absolutely. So it's like then they're definitely motivated. Right. Awesome. So let's look at to pivot over into the second part of this, right? Because mm-hmm. we had some, there's pieces to the asset and I can, I honestly, I can see it both ways, right? I told, I get it where it's like, all right, well, maybe there's some stuff that I could have been more diligent on, but then if I'm too diligent, nobody wants to do deals with me. And then maybe those are that potentially that's unescapable, right? I mean, like maybe we all get caught in that trap every now and again of saying that, you know, we only can rely based upon our experience and what we've done and it's worked for us all these other times and, you know, uh, who knows, right? But the other piece of this too is about how that's like knowing the asset and there's seemingly nothing really actually that bad with the asset. Right? I mean, no. it, it seemed to have, that was actually kind of fine, but maybe the deal, maybe some red flags in the deal. Maybe if you looked into them a little more, it could have squat kept you out of the deal for a couple of reasons. Either they would have booted you out because you're too nosy right. or you would have found some stuff and like, oh, okay, that's actually kind of wonky and I'm not going right. to do that. Right. Right. But then the other part of this too is the knowledge of the operator, right? Right. So yeah, could, can you share with us about like a little bit about why, what, what did you like first about like, what did you like sure. about that attracted you? to the Well, operator? what I liked was that this particular operator, 
I had known him or at least been associated with him for a couple of years. I knew that he was, had done a handful, call it four or five other projects larger than this. And I knew, I thought, from my knowledge, he had, when things had gone south on other projects, he had worked really hard to correct them. So at that point, none of the projects that he had was managing had gone terribly wrong. They had just had some bumps in the road. He had corrected those issues. He had a number of the people that I associated with had, had invested in multiple investments with him. And I wasn't hearing anything about, you know, we're not getting paid. It was all generally positive responses. So... I felt, and I was right on this, I felt like that if this deal were to go horribly wrong, that it would sully his reputation to the point that he would have a hard time getting future investors on future deals. So I just felt like given his track record and given his relationship with the network I was part of, and given the fact that some of his closest associates were actually on this same investment as I was, that there was a very low risk that he would fight very hard to make it successful. What I didn't count on was a possibility that all of his projects would collapse or that his finances would collapse in such a way that he would walk away from all of them simultaneously and basically kind of you know burn the bridge behind him effectively. And I don't know if there's anything you can really do to prepare yourself for that, right? Because that's somebody else just totally collapsing. It's, yeah, yeah, it's like a Madoff type deal, you know, yeah. where, where, you know, everybody's just doing what everybody else is and nobody, you know, no one ex- sees it coming and, and maybe didn't do anything wrong in that regard as far as evaluating that person. Yeah. yeah. And so. at some point too, we're also making investment decisions of how much time we're willing to invest mm-hmm. into any of these given people, right? Cause there's obviously even in this scenario, right? Is there always things you could have done? Probably, right? Like you could have said, well, I'm going to hire somebody to go talk to the contractors he has on other jobs and see if they're paid on time and sure. all of this other stuff too, right? But who's doing that? Because the right. cost of that's so high, it would eliminate you know, your returns respectively. And, it, if there, and how do you judge or evaluate people? Is there anything thinking back at that now about Warning seeing signs him? Or- yeah, like to see about... What we, what would we be looking for? Cause obviously yeah. there's some assumptions that we made or that were made in that scenario of that analysis that proved out to be wrong. Right. You know? Yeah. No, I think the biggest one was that just the general communication. The other, I felt like communication was a little slow and thin in even prior to investing with this particular sponsor. And so that was a warning sign that maybe they're not the most communicative when they want your money. If they're not getting back to you quickly, it makes you wonder how responsive they're going to be when they have your money. So that was definitely a red flag. But my assumption was that this person just had a lot on their plate. They were very busy. And actually I did even, I did ask as part of my due diligence for them to kind of send me an example of a quarterly or, you know, update of sorts that they had done on other properties, which they did. Once again, I think in that situation, I received that one and it may have been the only report they ever sent out. And maybe the next level of digging would have been to say, can I see the others or who do I know that's on this investment? I want to talk to them about how your reporting has been kind of, you know, overall. So perhaps, you know, once again, perhaps didn't dig deep enough. But at some point you kind of say, I'm comfortable enough. I've got to get moving. Yeah. You know, this is one of many investments that I'm involved in. I can't commit all my time, effort and energy to value because at some point you might as well just go be a active participant in the deal. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, the whole point of passivity is that you're kind of trying to evaluate this deal and then someone else is going to run with it. 
And so you're just saying, I think they can handle it. I think they can get it to a point of success. So off they go. I'm with you on that. And I'm just wondering here is an idea uh, that I don't know the answer to, but just something that's occurring to me here in the moment of it is saying that, you know, maybe if those are super expensive if they're one-offs, right? Mm-hmm. But perhaps things like how deep our network goes with who we're spending time with, if we lever those saying, well, actually meeting the other investors that are doing deals with this guy would help me check him out. But that also expands my network of other additional deals and funds. And if we expand and say, actually knowing the people right. actually has all of these other benefits to it. Right. Now the cost associated with that is a lot lower. And this might be a piece that, that we can all, you know, think deeper about as we get deeper into the real estate investment game is like the true value of your network is information that isn't disclosed. Right. It's like you're trying to figure out the, what is the really nitty gritty of what's going mm-hmm. on in this guy's life. And what is going on with all of that, that we're now part of this little nice little gossipy community of, and maybe there's value in gossip in that sense, right? And I definitely don't think about that. I don't, I, this is the first time I've really even thought about it, just hearing your story of just saying, whoa, maybe actually networks are powerful in this whole different way. Right. That I never really thought of. Yeah, I agree. I think in this one though, I, as I mentioned, a couple of the investors in the specific deal were part of what I would consider his inner circle. Now, I will say that, so I felt like they would know kind of where he was right. at better than anybody. Right. And that if they had concerns that they probably wouldn't have jumped in on the deal. Yeah. That being said, uh, one thing we didn't touch on in the structure was that I took a higher risk position in the capital stack versus some of the other investors in hopes of achieving a higher return. And that, as a result, has put me in a position where this whole deal is still in play, but odds are all of my investment will be wiped out 100%. Because I was a equity participant, so higher risk, higher return. And then some of the other members who were closer to him actually came in in debt positions, and those folks will most likely see a portion of their investment back. Mm. Like I say, it's still a moving target, but that's my expectation. So they took a little lower return, lower risk, and it'll probably play out well for them, at least relative to the, the equity players. Like yeah. So. And this will be great. I mean, I can't wait until we're able to sit down with the webinar to actually dig into the actual deal details. Sure. Because really the information that you're laying on everybody right now is about what's the importance of the return you get in the equity stack. Yeah. That is the high, high level types of investing information that everybody really needs to get into to really you know, know what the full risks are when you get into a lot of these deals. Looking at it, man, I don't know if there's any way that you don't, you could have really done that much, actually, that much differently, right? I mean, every yeah. decision you're making isn't like, oh, well, I just, you know, trusted my uncle and yeah. he blew it, you know? No, and I think it's about diversification and knowing what you're doing and, you know, no one bats a thousand. You try and just, you know, stay in multiple deals. You know, in addition to this kind of local deal, I'm involved in some crowdfunding deals, some commercial, some residential and, you know, that's mostly through uh, retirement accounts, which have to be passive. When we're dealing with our own capital, we're almost always heavily involved in the asset, which is reduces the risk greatly if we have that control. So, yeah. So, you know, if you knew which one would be a, a loser, you try not to make, you know, you obviously wouldn't do it. You know, you learn from your mistakes to try and lose less often. Absolutely. But you still keep stepping up to the plate. And at the end of the day, it's, you know, if you're batting 900, then then good for you. Yeah. So. No, I think so. Yeah. You know, and part of that's just saying, like, can you get back onto it? And you obviously have, right? Like, you already come back to the plate and you're still swinging hard. So. Yeah. And that's a good yeah. point. I will say this, where I think a lot of people, you know, once something goes bad and, and you've gone through your phases of depression and you're rolling into acceptance, <laughs> huh. 
you know, it's <laughs> yeah. There's some denial in there too. Yeah, like this didn't really happen. I'm gonna stuff. get my money back. I accelerate and, uh, yeah. all processes. <laughs> so once you've moved, move forward. I think where some people get tripped up is all you can do is you learn the lessons so you don't make the same mistake again, and try not to waste any more time messing with it. If it's dead, don't try and resuscitate it. If it's dead, and then get back to work. Take those skills you've learned and get back to investing and making money so that you're not throwing one, you don't throw good money and good time after bad and start getting back on good deals to start putting it, you know, putting things back the way they should be. Yeah. Uh, really it's like the, how much do you lose by a deal going bad? It's like, there's a certain amount that's hard to recover from, which is the money side. Mm-hmm. But the huge losses that people make is like, they either take all the chips off the table. They stop trying oh, the game is rigged, everybody's just out to steal from me, whatever, right? Right. And that's where you're just said, oh, well, now you're going to lose years of your time right. by not participating anymore right. in things, right? You lose decades, you lose a lifetime of opportunity because you, you, you're you discouraged. You so yeah. get back out in there, put your toes back in the water, yeah. start swaying again, remember what you're good at, don't get focused on, you know, on the occasional... Uh, tough lesson. It happened to all of us, right? Absolutely. If you're in the game, it's going to happen. Absolutely. Just get ready for it. <laughs> all right, well, thanks, Scott, for uh, coming and joining us today and sharing. I know the losses are never fun to talk about and a lot of that, but they really are, I think, the way that we learn the best. I can tell from your experience in doing this that like, you really learned a lot from that experience that's made you a more seasoned investor and probably you know benefit to yourself, but also everybody else that works with you and knowing what your experience is going to be and help protecting their money and advising them on what assets they want to look at. So I think it's just really great to come in and share about that because it's such a piece that nobody wants to really talk about that you don't really get it to hear it that often. So well, thanks for letting yeah. me air out my laundry. I feel, I feel <laughs> yeah. a lot better. Absolutely. <laughs> and when everybody wants to come and invest with you in any deals you're doing, can you share with them your website or best ways to contact sure, you? Sure, absolutely. My website is realtystake.com that's www.realtystake.com yeah that's right and that's Scott Sutherland the professional investor extraordinaire out here in Austin, Texas and I'm Scott Royal Smith thanks for joining us on the Real Estate Nerds Podcast that's all for this Bad Beats episode I'm your host Scott Royal Smith with the Real Estate Nerds Podcast did you see yourself in any part of that story? I know I did If you enjoyed the show, leave a review to help clue in the sleeping masses of what they need to know and what we all need reminders of. Do your good deed for the day. Thanks, and I'll see you again soon.